Welcome to Black Health Matters. I'm Daryl Armistead, your host. This episode is a Zoom recording of Howard University group session led by Dr. Clive Callender. Well, it's nine o'clock, so I guess we can get started. I wanted to start off by talking about a couple of things that are in the post, which I thought were kind of remarkable in the sense that uh, uh, one of the top headlines was uh, that there's an interventional program that helps tackle racism, cancer cure. Uh, uh, we all know that uh, cancer in African-Americans seems to kill us more often than it does other ethnic groups. And uh, there've been a number, number of programs. What was interesting about this interesting article on uh, intervention program helps tackle racism in cancer care is that they have actually put into practice uh, what uh, Harold Freeman talked about when he got the Alaska Prize and, 2000, which is that uh, much of the reason why African-Americans uh, die from cancer more than any, any other group is because of access to care. And uh, uh, this is when this is addressed, as he started addressing in 2000, uh, this, then many of the uh, uh, mortality, uh, the, the drastically low mortality rates or high mortality rates, rather, uh, go away uh, because the social determinants of health play a major role in uh, why Blacks uh, uh, die from uh, breast cancer more than in any other group, especially when we're talking about women. Uh, but it was interesting because the article talks about many of the programs that are now addressing the social determinants of health, uh, and it actually never even mentioned his pioneering work back in 2000. And uh, so I thought that was interesting, but then that is not a rare case. Uh, sometimes the, the original work is kind of forgotten about, uh, uh, but, uh, but it's, it's good that uh, people are taking advantage of, of, of recognition that the social uh, determinants of health play a major role in some of the uh, reasons why blacks uh, die from breast cancer and other illnesses. Uh, and I thought that that's a great article because it, it does focus on the a specific intervention. It talks about this lady who uh, uh, had breast cancer and needed treatment, but, she, but treatment was 90 minutes away. And she couldn't get anybody to help her get to uh, where she needed to go to get the treatment. So she, so she refused to get the treatment. But she found a cancer center that would come and pick her up and take her to the treatment place and 
bring her back home. And as a consequence, she got the radiation treatment she needed, and she's now two years uh, after uh, being cancer-free. Uh, it's a good example of how access to care plays such a major role in healthcare. And often we forget about it. It's just with, as we uh, noticed with the uh, coronavirus, uh, how uh, many times the people couldn't get access to it because of reasons that uh, were really re related to the social determinants of health. And the five social determinants of health uh, relate to poverty, environment, and uh, things like transportation, simple things that uh, make a difference between life and death. Uh, and I thought it was a, a great article to point that out, even though I did not uh, recognize that this intervention was was really begun in 2000. And actually, Harold Freeman, who was my one of my chief residents, uh, actually won the Alaska Prize, uh, which is the American equivalent of the Nobel Prize. Uh, uh, the difference is staggering in that you get a million dollars for the uh, Nobel Prize and a hundred thousand for the Alaska. But anyway, that that was uh, one of the uh, excellent articles that uh, uh, the Washington Post talked about. The second one was an equally fascinating article about uh, the people who actually developed RNA and pointed out how important it was and how that has now resulted in the development of the vaccines that uh, are responsible for drastically reducing the number of deaths in the United States and across the globe. And it talks about how uh, Drew Weissman and uh, Catalina Carrico uh, nearly 30 years ago began their work on RNA and uh, how that now, three decades later, their work is being uh, uh, appreciate it. Uh, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see. They, they got the Alaska Prize uh, for that work. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if they also get the uh, Nobel Prize. But, but this was the basic fundamental work that demonstrated that RNA could be used uh, to develop vaccines. And, uh, and uh, while much of the uh, focus has been on those people who actually created the vaccine, which they did not. Uh, uh, still, it all goes back to the, the foundational pioneering work of uh, all these investigators who, who identified RNA and stabilized the RNA so that it could be used to develop these vaccines. Uh, so. Any thoughts uh, about uh, those comments or do you, you uh, have any, any thoughts about it? What is RNA? Okay, DNA is the uh, primary uh, source of all genetic activity. It's in the nucleus. RNA is, uh, is DNA desoxyribonucleic acid uh, found in the nucleus. And it makes everything happen. And RNA is also in the nucleus. It also does that, and it's. Uh, not quite as stable as DNA. So a lot of attention, uh, people won the Nobel Prize for identifying DNA as being the prime protein uh, for, for signaling cells to work. RNA signals cells to develop immunity. And so that makes it a little different. Uh, so the whole immune system is based upon the two, the DNA and RNA. But uh, 
much more attention was given to DNA because it was the first one developed and the RNA was less stable. But the ribonucleic acid RNA uh, is what has been used for the new vaccine, uh, that uh, the coronavirus vaccine, and likely will be used for the development of many other vaccines now that we've actually uh, uh, taken advantage of using it and, and seeing how effective it is. Thank you. Does that, that, that answer that question? Yes. yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Any other comments on uh, why it takes so long for some people to work to be recognized? That's, you know, one of the things that I, I've learned along the line is that uh, one of the biggest obstacles to success is when people need to get credit. And so one of the best things you can do if you want to work with people is not to worry about credit at all. Just do the, do the job and do the best thing you can. And, and uh, the way I, I looked at it as I was working with the transplant center was that uh, do it as unto the Lord and don't worry about getting credit. Just do it as unto the Lord and, the, and everything else will take care of itself. And who needs credit anyway? You just want to do the best you can and make things happen positively. And, uh, and, and if you want to stifle things, worry, worry about who, get, who gets credit for it. And, uh, uh, but I find that many people worry about who gets credit. Uh, I, I have never worried about who gets credit. I'm just worried about doing it as unto the Lord and, uh, and let, let things fall from there. Uh, walking back and going, uh, going the rest of the way. Anyway, I can imagine that um, racism plays a part in that as well. In other words, sometimes uh, black people uh, are hot on, on discovering something, and it's snatched away from them by black by white people. Well, racism is a part of everything in this country. And uh, it probably is part of everything in the world. I mean, you know, we talk about racism in America, but uh, what racism is, is a system in which one ethnic group is thought to be superior to another. And that's in every, every part of this globe. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's called differently here in the United States because they've taken advantage of black people and made them slaves taking advantage of what they had, but, but it's not unique to America. It's everywhere in the world uh, that uh, racism is evident. It's just it's called, called different things. And yes, you're right. Uh, uh, not infrequently, uh, things that black people started taken by others and, and then they crossed the finish line with it. Uh, but uh, uh, the foundational work is what is important. Uh, uh, and you may argue that uh, uh, the giving away of credit is, uh, is unfair and, and, and wrong and unethical, unethical. And that may be true, but uh, uh, still the focus on getting credit is uh, problematic in the long run. In the short run, may not be a problem. And as you work in different groups, uh, you find that uh, uh, there are people who are obsessed with, with taking credit and uh, mm -hmm. that, 
that can be a deterrent to progress, uh-huh. as racism often is. Okay, if there are no other comments, uh, John, you can start the uh, slide. So, there's another article on the uh, why you're starting it on uh, salt. Uh, we talked about salt before and sugar, and the two poisons that uh, uh, kill us. Uh, and it talks about decreasing that. Now, this is an article I thought was interesting for us to talk about because most people don't think too much about the uh, impact of death on physicians. And uh, uh, as I look at, you know, I'm in the field of transplant where uh, when I started off in transplant, the success rate was only 50%, which means that half the people you you work on are going to die. And so uh, you would have to wonder what kind of impact does that have on physicians? Uh, how do you cope? How do you manage when half the people you work on die? And how do you manage to survive and continue to do that? How, how do you handle the stress, the, the guilt, and uh, the, 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 the actual fact that you failed, the, the, you feel that you failed the patient and that what you've done is not good enough. And uh, uh, you see here that 61% of the physicians that the most memorable patient death they witnessed uh, hurt them forever. Well, I, I remember uh, first place, one of the things that you have to recognize is that doctors are human beings. Right. And doctors make mistakes. And some of the mistakes they make uh, may help people, some may kill people. And so uh, this then you have to recognize is going to have a tremendous impact. I, rem- I remember the deaths of my patients from when I was a resident, uh, which is more than 50 years ago. Uh, and uh, and I, I remember virtually all of the failures that, uh, that I participated in. And uh, uh, of course, one, one thing that helps balance the scale is your successes and the, the people who do well. But uh, uh, that's why it's always been interesting to me to understand why any physician would be arrogant because uh, we see so many people die in spite of us or because of us. And we see people who survive in spite of all because of us. And so we ought to be the most humble of all people. Uh, and uh, so uh, the question is, how do you help the physician who actually grieves when the patient is lost? And most, most times uh, the doctor does not manifest the grief that he has because he's lost the patient. And I remember uh, uh, Raleigh Freeman talking about her uh, reaction when her doctor told her that she had renal disease and how she actually had to comfort her doctor. Uh, Hmm. So that uh, uh, we grieve and and it it, it is not, it was human human to grieve. And so it should be expected that we grieve and and, and is it okay for doctors to cry when they lose patients? Of course, Mm -hmm. because we're human. And so, 
the more humanistic we are and the more humanistic we manifest ourselves, the, the better off it is for patients. And so um, early on, there were no such thing as uh, death debriefing sessions in which you, hmm. physician was helped to cope with death. Uh, you just dealt with it and moved on. And uh, now we are recognize that the physician is in great need of support uh, when the, uh, the patient dies. And what, what, what was the most comforting uh, to me uh, and, and, and what I did to do uh, to train my residents to help them uh, was to let them understand that uh, life and death is not really in your hands, uh, that there's a greater power that uh, determines life and death. But your responsibility as a physician is to do the very best that you can. Mm-hmm. And when you've done the very best that you can, mm-hmm. then you can, uh, you can take solace in that fact. And so yeah. uh, the reason I had a, a, a tough reputation is because I demanded that you do the very best that you can. And mediocrity was not accepted because patients' lives occur. And so what, when you've done the very best you can and you recognize that life and death is not in your hands, then, it's, 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 then you can survive. And, and that to me is the greatest uh, uh, opportunity to recognize that you have the right to grieve when you've done the very best you can. If you're not doing your best, I'm not uh, supportive of you. Uh, but anyway, that, that's just uh, an inside uh, uh, look at uh, the things that uh, go on in the physician's mind as they deal with success and failure. In many other fields, success and failure does not take you to life and death. But uh, in, when you're a healthcare provider, uh, life and death are the things that you have to deal with. And you have to learn to deal with deaths the same way you deal with successes uh, and recognize that the power that controls success and death are the same. Uh, but And what you have to do is to take advantage of the gifts that God has given you and use them to the best of your ability. When you've done that, then your grieving process is much softer and kinder. Now, they talk about Go ahead, yeah. I have a question. Uh, in your experience, how does the physician group compare to the general population when it comes to having healthy hobbies? Do doctors uh, tend to have as much healthy hobbies as everybody else, uh, less, more? What's your experience? My experience is that, and I've dealt more with black doctors than others, is that uh, we have a lot of hobbies. Uh, you know, we grew up... Uh, uh, and medicine was not the first thing we, we worked at. And so uh, most of us have other hobbies. So we have fun doing other things. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so that helps us as well. Uh, and I think uh, the point of uh, broadening your horizons becomes important because of everything you do hinges on what happens with uh, uh, your role as a doctor, then that, that's extremely difficult. So diversification and having hobbies and, and other things that you do, just like, for example, uh, you, you do so many things, uh, Daryl, uh, that diversity is very helpful. And I think, yes, answer your question, uh, especially the doctors, we have many, many hobbies. Uh, what we sometimes don't do is when we 
Itzo and hooked up with medicine that we sometimes let those hobbies go and that is dangerous because uh, you're not going to be a doctor all your life. Most people aren't. Most people are going to retire. So you have to have something to fall back to. And therefore the hobbies become the things that uh, carry you after you've stopped your practice of medicine. Um, Dr. Callender, we had this before with Maya introducing to us and telling about the grieving process. Um, how do we help others, and particularly in our church, when they tell you don't grieve, don't cry, and et cetera. It's going to be okay, and it's a glorious day that this person has died. Um, is there anything we can do as individuals or as a group to help everyone to learn how to grieve? Because it seems like in our society, we're shutting down everybody if they want well, to grieve. I agree with you that... Uh, Grieving is a process that must you must go through, and uh, it is okay to grieve. And I think the the essence of the message that you're giving is that uh, yes, uh, in death you're born again, and there's a second there is a second life, and there's maybe a second death. Uh, but uh, uh, it's okay to, to grieve and to miss people, and uh, uh, crying is good, healthy and uh, encourage it uh and uh uh so i don't i don't i don't discourage anybody from grieving or from crying and neither do i discourage them from celebrating the life of the person because i think the celebration of the life is an important part of the grieving process uh so i don't i don't uh, uh destroy the uh concept that you should celebrate but i i say that you should do both you should celebrate their lives and also you can grieve for them because you miss them. That's what you're saying. You know, when we talk about the hereafter, uh, one thing that we never talk about is the fact that we, our physical bodies are gone. And so we're talking about spiritual, uh, new heaven, new earth, new, new spiritual bodies. And, and so uh, God is a spirit. Uh, so and when you become an angel, which is the next step, uh, we're not going to be able to recognize you because you're not going to have a body. So we, we tend not to even address that. I've never heard that even addressed in any funeral. And they talk about we'll see him or her in the year after. Yeah, you will see the spirit, but you don't see the body. because The body's gone. So how are you going to recognize with your loved one, and uh, that's never discussed. But uh, uh, yes, you, you should celebrate the, the life of a person. Uh, that's part, to me, that's an important part of the grieving process. But uh, you should also recognize that, let's face it, you're not gonna see him in that form ever again. Uh, that, that's, that, that, that is harmful and hurtful to many people, but that's the, the, the truth. Any thoughts about that? I, I don't know if we, if you've ever th thought about it as, as you hear people say, we will see them in the hereafter. Yeah, they won't be, have any bodies, remember. This is different, different uh, issue. I agree that preachers often say, you know, when you get a you, you, mother be there waiting and father be, yeah. but, you know. Yeah. They I've often that. wondered about that myself. 
<laughs> you know, the bodies are gone. So what? How are we gonna know who it is? But yeah, yeah. I've never heard anybody talk I've about that. I've never heard it either. either. But it's a, it's a, part of it. And you know, when John says, uh, uh, "I was in John the second chapter," I think he talks about uh, uh, that that when we uh, get to him, we see him as he is uh, because he's the Spirit. But nobody talks about how we're going to recognize each other. How how we're going to know that the spirits and uh, because we, you know, uh, it also talks in in uh, Psalms about uh, uh, we're a little lower than the angels, and so the step up for us would be to be angels. And so uh, and angels don't have bodies. So uh, how are we going to do that anyway? It's food for thought to think about. Uh, as we uh, all are going to die, then that means we will all uh, become spirits because our bodies will deteriorate. And that's why many people go ahead and get them, uh, go and get, uh, 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 what do you call them? Cremated. Cremated, right. Because they recognize that in the hereafter, the body's not gonna be here. And that's why the, uh, active organ donation is a positive thing because your organs will be used to keep somebody else alive while you're gone. Otherwise, your body goes and, and deteriorates completely and it's, it's of no merit. Uh, one more thing, Dr. Callender. Um, I was telling someone, they were talking about an inexpensive way of leaving here and I was just wondering, is that talked about much when you give your body to medical science or, and they bury you and you don't have to pay anything? Is that true? Yes. Yes, and that's, you know, that's something that we tend not to talk too much about. Uh, I've been to many ceremonies in which the families who have donated the bodies uh, are honored and they appreciate the fact that the their, their bodies have been used to teach medical students and to make things better. And then after that, the uh, bodies are taken away. But uh, yeah, that, that, but what is, what's surprising to me that it was so many uh, people of our ethnicity who were actually did that. Uh, Dr. Callender, I remember um, as a, as a teacher, uh, I guess it's about maybe, 15 years ago or so, um, John Tatum probably remembers this. The teachers all had to get together for, for these um, uh, training sessions about uh, grieving. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that really came to the, to the front much, much later than those sessions. So whoever thought about that was, was really uh, thinking ahead. Because a lot of a lot of our students, uh, you know, teaching in the public schools, you know, I had a, I had a student in class uh, on Friday, and he was acting out. I put him out, and Friday night he he got shot on the street corner. Wow. Uh, you know, so we 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 deal with with loss as as teachers, and inner city teachers uh, uh, a lot more, and. Uh, so learning how to how to grieve is something that you know th that they had sessions on for for, for teachers, uh, you know, having to 
to deal with this, uh, you know, in, in our neighborhoods, you know, the gunshots going off and drive-bys and all this stuff that's, that's happening uh, that we hear about in the news, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's pretty scary. So, um, you know, ha having that, that support and having that, those techniques for, you know, dealing with, with loss, uh, it, it helped me when, when my mom and, and my dad and my son passed away as well, because, um, you know, I was able to, to like focus on, on the positive and, you know, thanks. Uh, well, you know, okay, I, I think we learned too in life, there's no set way to grieve. It's an individual thing. I, when we were doing the act, for instance, um, grief was a big part of that. What is grief? and this is me personally speaking, I still don't really know what grief is. People tell me, I don't think you've grieved yet. Um, it's not a step-by-step, step. it's not a one, two, three thing. Uh, we grieve individually. You grieve not for a day, not for a month. Um, I don't think it's a limit on it, but I don't know how you can define it as being one thing. You have to cry to grieve. Um, what does that mean? If you're happy, you're not grieving. Um, I think we all handle emotions differently. Um, you were talking earlier about doctors, physicians, and uh, I often wonder, how do you do it? You have to show compassion to deal with a patient and that patient needs to feel that compassion to respond to what you're telling them. And then when you lose that patient, it's difficult for the family, but I think it's even more traumatic for the doctor. Um, emotions are just all over the place at a time like that. Maybe I'm not explaining it well, um, but grief is a, a big part of life actually. And um, at times, I guess we all will go through some form of grief, but they can't teach you to grieve. Uh, it could be years down the line and you'll eventually say, okay, I've put that aside. I'm finally at peace. Um, obviously I'm rambling, but it's an emotional thing for me. And uh, I just don't know yet what that term grief really means. I know how it is to be attached to an individual as a physician, being attached to a family member. I know Dr. Callender, you were very, very close to my family um, during my husband. I know the surgeon who um, took care of David. It was 30 days with him. And um, the last week, one of the uh, nurses said, oh, I think he did something wrong. And I said, oh my goodness, what's that? And she said, he fell in love with you guys. Um, we were the ones who after the 13th of March, the only ones that were able to stay in GW Hospital. We were the only non-medical staff, my son and I, walking the hospital. And I noticed that last week he showed more compassion than he did the week prior. Then I was no longer Mrs. Stevenson, I was Janice. And then the last days, when you mentioned about Pearlene and how she had the comfort, um, her doctor, that was the position that I was in. Um, maybe we can do this, maybe we can do that. 
And finally, I had to tell him, it's okay, um, which was a difficult thing to do, but it's an emotional time. You doctors get involved in hundreds of people, um, but is that a grieving process? Um, it's difficult to say, I lost a patient, I love that patient and go forward, but it's something that you have to do. So as an individual, when we all share loss of a family member, I've learned it's not for a day or a month or a year. You show some form of grief throughout your life. Okay, this well is expressed. Well expressed. Sure. Uh, um, this is just take a few seconds. Several indications in scripture that we will maintain our identity in heaven and thus be recognizable to our loved ones and they to us. For example, Jesus makes it a point in Matthew 22nd chapter that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive and existing as individuals by those names. In Matthew, Peter, James, and John recognized Moses and Elijah. In Thessalonians, Paul is recognized in heaven, the Thessalonian Christians whom he administered to on earth. In addition, Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and I shall know just as I am known. That last phrase, I shall know just as I am also known, would indicate that we shall know others as well as be known by others. Well, I think we've heard some interesting uh, uh, descriptions of grief, and uh, yeah. I think... Uh, uh, in the uh, way in which you describe grief, it's clear what it is, and uh, it's clear that uh, uh, it is as you expressed. Dennis expressed it well in terms of what grief is, and uh, and and also expressed the fact that uh, we know when we're born to die, and so uh, grief is always with us, and so. Uh, accepting that is probably one of the most important parts of the grieving process. Uh, and that those you love are going to die and you're going to die. And, uh, uh, and it's interesting how the, we talk about the, some of the techniques involved and helpful in yoga, mindfulness, exercise, meditation of all sorts. And healthy hobby, uh, which take your mind off, sometimes off of the grieving process. Uh, sometimes that helps a lot. But uh, I think all of the ways you've described grieving is what it is. And, and as you said, it's, there's no timetable for grief. Uh, it begins and ends when it, at the beginning of your life and ends when you die, probably. Uh, but uh, uh, nobody can tell you how long you should grieve or, or how you should grieve. It's a very individual thing. Okay, is there, any, is there any more? Yeah, okay. Any other comments about that from anyone before we go into the vaccines, back to the real deal? Okay, uh, I think this is an article that uh, talks about uh, the different vaccines and we, we know uh, now as we talked about the RNA being uh, uh, an, a relatively new methodology compared to what we had in the past. Even though it's not new as you, as you 
as from our discussion, you can realize working on it for 30 years, but uh, uh, actually just incorporating it into a vaccine recently, right? Uh, and the, uh, the flu is interesting because every year we have a new uh, strain of the flu, of the vaccine, flu vaccine. And, and many have wondered, is that gonna be the same thing with COVID? And, and I guess uh, we don't really know. Uh, but we know with the flu every year, it's a different version of, with different strains of the virus being incorporated into the vaccine. And uh, how long is the flu vaccine protective? Uh, that's another thing that may vary with age. And that's why people over 65 get a double dose of the vaccine for the flu um, and for the different uh, vaccines. One of the things that, that you kind of recognize if you look at the success of the vaccine is that many of the vaccines are successful up to about 50 to 60%. And that too many of them are in the 90 to 100%. Uh, range. And so one of the most important things about the, these vaccines is they uh, strengthen your immune system so you can fight off the, the infection. So uh, that, that's, what, that's what immunity is all about, is enabling your immune system to fight off infections. Any questions or comments about that? Because um, how many of you have already gotten your flu vaccines? Got mine. Yeah. Yes. I got my booster. Yeah. I got both the vaccine and the booster. I got not at the same time though. <laughs> got boosters yesterday. I'm getting my flu shot tomorrow. Yeah, I'm getting my flu shot today. So. I'm getting both today. Okay. And I also got my shingle shot. Oh, wonderful. Good, good, good. Well, the first one, I get another one in December. Okay. How often do you have to get the shingle shot? Is it once a year or? Yeah, no, no. No, after you get the single shot, it should last for about uh, five years. Okay. Like that. Yeah. I think it's in two, two stages, though, Doc, right? Yes, yeah. that's correct. Does anybody know if a shingle shot is paid for with Medicare? They were going to charge me last year. And I, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know for sure, but it should be. I mean, it's. Uh, I, I got mine last year, and I have not received a bill. I don't know if it was paid by um, uh, Medicare or if uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield is my secondary, whether or not they kicked in, but I have not received a bill for it. I, I I never received a bill for it either. So, yeah, my shingle. Uh, but then, but then I, I I I'm still working, so it's not Medicare. Yeah, my shingles vaccine is about ten years ago, so I guess I'll, I'll get it because I I've had shingles twice and I don't want it again. It's the worst thing in the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's time to get it, get another shot after ten years. Yeah. 
with the uh, calendar. Is that the future of mankind fighting off viruses and mutation of uh, viruses? What do you mean future? Today and tomorrow. That's <laughs> <Yes. laughs> today and tomorrow. Yes, yes, yes. You know, we we talk about trying to be immortal. Well, you know, that's that's a tough deal. Do you really want to live uh, for two hundred years? No. no. Uh, as healthy as I am today, I'll take two hundred years in a minute. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, but it, 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 it staying healthy. Is, is as Daryl said is is the issue because it's the quality of life that you want to have and as long as you can live to be 200 and stay like you are today it's okay but it, it involves but it involves boosting up your immune system because uh, the tendency for your immune system is to is to uh, decrease over time and that's what the vaccines help you with my question really has to do with, uh, you know, how many vaccines are we going to have to take, you know, like 20 years from now, 30 years from now, you know, how many <laughs> you go to CVS and get in line because you got to take about 10, 15 different vaccines. Is that where we're headed? Well, it's likely that some of them will be pills. Just like the new COVID vaccine that's going to be a pill in the future, probably will be pills. But uh, I'm sure you will have to have some way to boost up your immune system as you age. Uh, what What is uh, distressing me a little bit is uh, uh, only 27% of people in low and middle income countries uh, have uh, have access to the vaccine. That's uh, a little distressing. Uh, and, uh, and we talk about the equity. Uh, it is true that these uh, uh, people who make the vaccines uh, are getting rich. Uh, uh, Dr. Did you uh, hear, I think it was like the, the World um, Health Organization and like the people over in Africa, they were asking for to buy the vaccine, but, you know, I guess dealing with the um, thing of, you know, um, you know, transports and stuff that, you know, stuff not going out. Because um, he was saying, we, we don't want you to give us anything. You know, we yes, we accept donations, but they wanted to buy so they can vaccinate the people in Africa. Yeah, well, uh, uh, it's interesting because everybody who who gets the vaccine, they, they pay for it. Uh, and if they pay for it and then they give it away, that's one thing. Uh, but that that's an interesting uh, uh, statement that they want to pay for it like everybody else. Uh, and this talks about the, uh, what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, see in Africa, 95% of the people are yet to be fully vaccinated. And so, We've uh, got a long way to go. 
because it's a global phenomenon, <laughs> not a one country. All, all of the world is affected by these diseases, especially COVID. And uh, to the extent to which we allow a segment of the world to not be vaccinated, that's the extent to which you have these uh, uh, Variance. variances that uh, can turn out to be lethal. So that uh, we need to have as many people vaccinated in the world as possible. All right. Uh, is there any other country besides America that's fighting the vaccination? Are we the only country? No, no, I, no. I, now the only question is to what extent? Because uh, I think mean, every country has some hesitancy, and they've got some religions or some different communities that don't take the vaccine. So the question is. How, what percentage are taking it in the United States and what percentage in other countries? I haven't seen all of the numbers yet. But it'd be interesting to see. I think a lot of people aren't taking it because they can't get it. And so that, that, that uh, makes it difficult. Now, if you just look at the developed countries, then you might be able to get an answer. Uh, now this is, uh, remember last week we talked for the first time about uh, xenotransplantation, which is what we talk when you talk about transplants between different species. Uh, and, and this transplant was done last, last month. Uh, uh, th this is not new. Now keep in mind that uh, we're doing xenotransplants since the 1960s. But when HIV came around, uh, which is a, a disease that came from the primate model, the monkeys, uh, then uh, because, of the, because of that, all efforts at xenotransplantation or transplantation between species stopped. Uh, now, one of the reasons it stopped is because uh, most of the xenotransplants that were done uh, were rejected. And remember, there's a difference between a tissue transplantation that they use for heart valves and from an organ transplantation. <clears throat> because the tissue is not, it's, it's alive in a way, but it's not functioning. It's just uh, a mechanical thing. Whereas the organ has got to function. And uh, one of the things that you want to do is to make sure that you don't get an infection from the organ that you get so that you have to have a model in which uh, is safe, doesn't give you a disease, and also doesn't possess the antigen. Antigen is the uh, part of the uh, organ that causes the immune system to try to destroy it. And we knew that with any species, uh, there was certain, there's an alpha galactose uh, epitope that causes hyperacute rejection, which means that when you transplant within minutes to hours 
on the organ may be rejection. We call it hyperacute rejection. Rejection. So what they did, they had pigs that they uh, used special techniques to take away these uh, uh, these sugars uh, that caused uh, that trigger rejection. And so uh, this alpha gal of sugar. And these pigs uh, don't have this, and therefore they can be transplanted without the fear of hyperacute rejection, <clears throat> which doesn't mean that in the long run they won't have rejection, but it does mean that they won't have that early hyperacute rejection that, that has been the problem for most xenotransplants. And so the question is, uh, now that we've eliminated that obstacle, the next step is to make sure that we can do it in a way that allows the organ to stay without being rejected, which means you have to have uh, immunosuppressive medication. And the question is uh, how much immunosuppressive medication is necessary for the Zenith transplant compared to the uh, aloe transplant, which is the term we use for transplants between members of the same species. So I had a question about, are, are you saying that they genetically modify the pig first yes. before the transplant? Yes. Oh, okay. That, that's what made uh, the, experiment, the experiment, which it is, work because they genetically modified and made the pigs not have the sugar that causes the hyperacute rejection. And so there's only a hundred of them that have been created like this. So uh, the question is, uh, will this work so that we can uh, make a thousand pigs? Now, as you know, uh, we have a hundred, more than a hundred thousand people in transplant waiting list. And we only do about 40,000 transplants a year. So you've got 60,000 people who are waiting. And because of this long wait, 20 people die every single day because of the shortage of donors. Mm -hmm. And so this then, uh, the question is, would you rather have a big uh, kidney which would keep you alive or would you rather just die? And so the question is gonna be that, uh, now that we have the technology, should we uh, have xenotransplants? Because that's the ethical issue that will come up shortly uh, is, uh, is it okay to, uh, have a pygmy, pig kidney, a pygmy, a pig heart. Yeah. Uh, how many of you would think about accepting uh, a pig kidney or heart if it would keep you alive? Amen. I would. Yeah. My husband said he would. Amen. Life or death, I think I would too. And that, that is the ethical question that uh, is going to be the question of the day. Now that we know that we can, should we? And uh, what is gonna be the uh, religious and ethical response? When we were doing uh, xenotransplant, there were many groups that opposed it. And uh, if this becomes successful, that same issue will occur. I'm thinking that animal groups probably might be one of the ones being yes. 
because the pig, after you modify them and you use them for a transplant, they die, correct? Uh, it depends. If, it depends how many. You take out one kidney, they wouldn't die. But if you take out two kidneys, they would. Oh, if you take out heart. the heart, if you take out the heart, they will. Right. Yeah, so so uh, I'm thinking that the animal groups would be a part. Oh, they are. As a matter of fact, they always have. As yeah. when we were doing xenotransplants, uh, they would always come out and protest. Eat a, and all. Uh, but then do they protest when we eat the pigs? No. They, well, <laughs> when they go to slaughter and they have pigs yeah, I mean, you know, and all that. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, but you're right. They're going to be one of the groups. And then you're going to have groups, religious groups at all. Especially the pig, you know, is the animal that is thought to be filthy. So, yeah. uh, Count, I can remember years ago at the, one of the early transplant meetings um, in the late '90s, and you brought up that same question: uh, Would you have a um, pig or an animal organ? And everybody's saying, "Oh, I don't think so." Now here it is now a reality. It's a good possibility. If you want to live, yeah, you can get a pig kidney, heart, or whatever. But years ago, it was just so far-fetched. So we've come a long way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I remember, I remember yeah. being on television with uh, Dr. Death. Tavorkin. Talking about the subject. And uh, yeah. uh, they were, but it was interesting because when we, when we breached the subject, uh, about 95% of the people in the audience uh, would accept an uh, animal if it was going to save their lives. Mm -hmm. yeah, you used to use the pig for dialysis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They didn't protest then. Mm -hmm. Oh, they, they, no, no, they protest any use of animals. The animal rights people, they didn't protest any use of it. But, I have a question about the size of the organs. This pig, they use a pig because the size is very similar to human organs. That's why I, chose the pig. I know one of the things that my brother talked about after shortly after he received his kidney transplant is that he started craving things that he had never liked or had a desire for. Um, with having a pig kidney trans transplanted into a human. <laughs> Would there be things that um, they may inherit from that makeup, like you talked about the sugar? Would there be a less desire for sugar, maybe a more desire for um, sugar? The only way we'll know that is when that happens. We'll have to wait and see. More, we'll no idea. more, we'll desire, no idea. more desire to eat bacon. <laughs> we have, we have we no you brought that up last week because obviously this is a transplant group. And I was wondering too, anyone who's had a transplant, do you see possibly where you crave things that you've never liked before, like a lot of sweets or um, alcohol? I don't know. Um, whatever might, might have been the characteristic of the owner of that organ you received. And transplant people that I've ever associated with, they didn't they couldn't tell any difference where they were prone to um, have any reactions to uh, or cravings or lack of due to the organ that they received. So is that a standard thing, Dr. Callender? Well, or, we, don't, we don't know the answer to that question. And yeah. most of the people who have been asked about it did not identify it. 
Right. Uh, but, but that doesn't mean that, that that would be the same thing with the, the animals. I know with humans, uh, we don't know the answer to that question. Uh, and it's, it's going to, and we now have done so many transplants that it's a good question to continue to pose. But most of the people haven't expressed a difference. But there have been single patients who have said that they have noticed some differences. It, would a transplant uh, change your blood type? I mean, if you were A or AB and now that you have someone else's organ, it's changed to another blood type. Is that known to happen? Uh, it's interesting because I think we had one, Dr. Joel Stevens had one paper that we published that talked about that. That's really the situation with, with kidneys. As uh, Daryl talked about, Last week, it is commonly the case with bone marrow, but not with all, not with kidneys uh, uh, or liver. Uh, not, not as we know with livers either. Mm -hmm. no, not with the organs, only the bone marrow. Um, um, just speaking about that, Janice. You know, both of us know since our husbands went through liver transplants. I don't think, um, I never noticed any um, cravings that he might have, but you know, we as human beings, when women, when we become pregnant, sometimes we have a craving for a certain thing just because of what our body is going through. And then after it's over with, it stops or it may continue. So that's just part of, I don't know, change in your body or something and you attribute it to, to that circumstance that you're in. That's an interesting question that uh, requires a, an interesting long-term study. We've got enough transplants now, so uh, anybody who wants to do that study can uh, do it. But long before they even started that, people had concerns about getting a woman kidney if you're a man and a, and a man. <laughs> If you're a woman and thinking that it might change them. But so far, we haven't received any evidence that that's the case. But, then, but that, that study still needs to be done to, to, to answer the question. Now, this is an article that talks about the fact that anxiety, stress, uh, as about the pandemic and being closed in has caused people to drink more and therefore alcoholic liver disease is once again becoming the number one source for the need for transplantation. Uh, we, we felt that fatty, fatty, not alcoholic, fatty liver disease would be number one, but uh, it looks like people are drinking more than ever. And as a consequence, alcohol, alcoholic hepatitis is taken over. And they think some of that is related to COVID and the stress and anxiety associated with COVID. Uh, when I first started out, alcoholic uh, cirrhosis was the leading cause for liver transplantation. And over time, hepatitis C took over as the number one. 
But now that we have a treatment for hepatitis C, uh, the thought was that non-alcoholic uh, fatty liver disease would be the number one. But now it appears that the frequency of alcohol consumption risen, and therefore that's becoming the number one cause of, of, of uh, liver damage that requires liver transplantation. I was a little surprised at that. What are your thoughts about it? I guess uh, if any of us drink, we might have a better understanding of it. Because alcoholism is a disease like uh, many others. And once you're addicted to alcohol, you're addicted. Any comments on this? The alcohol, the alcohol pig, the ones who have um, the liver disease from alcohol, do they um, get the same preference as other illnesses for, for transplants? No. no. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's an addiction. Yeah. So therefore, uh, before you get transplanted, you have to have a period of rehabilitation okay. in which you are required to stop drinking. Yeah, that, if, you can't stop, if you can't stop drinking for six months, then you can't be a candidate. Mm -hmm. we, we, our group uh, discussed this and they felt if you uh, were alcoholic or addicted to any drug, whether it's alcohol or whatever, and you get a transplant and you lose your organ because of your addiction, uh, that you should not be given the opportunity to get a, to get a second transplant. That's what the group decided. Uh, I, I brought that up because that was the condition my son was in and uh, the hospitals refused his uh, transplant because right. of his alcoholism. Yeah, until you, they, they wanted a six month period in which you're free of drinking. Yeah, well, he was kind of far gone. He wouldn't have lasted six months, so. Anyway, but they refused it and he passed. Yeah. I just wanted that. Since the article was talking about um, drinking, I just wanted that known that they, they don't get the same preferences. No. Mm -hmm. And uh, although there's, there's been a recent, actually, I, there was a presentation just last week, and, and uh, uh, they uh, are wondering whether we need to continue to have that six months requirement. Mm. But I was surprised that our group actually uh, felt that if you had alcoholism as a cause or any addiction as a cause of, the, of failure of the liver, and then after the liver transplant, you went back to it and, mm. and lost it again, that you shouldn't be given another chance. Are there any transplant restrictions for obesity? Yes. Uh, if you are uh, over uh, BMI over 40, uh, there are uh, many centers who will not transplant you if your BMI is over 40. Mm -hmm. And or they'll require you to get your BMI down to 40 or less before they will transplant you. 
Now, this is an article that uh, I had, you know, I, I just talked to one of my transplant patients who's 45 years after transplantation. And he's, he's got his uh, booster shot and still has uh, a low antibody titer. And so question is, should they receive a fourth shot? Uh, and uh, most people would say yes, but uh, there haven't been enough studies uh, to, to give it a real good answer to it. Uh, the thinking is that uh, for many, the third dose was not considered uh, a boost, but really just completion of the uh, process. And so the fourth shot, for some, they would think would be a booster. And you can see, we're talking about not only organ transplant recipients, but people who are on steroids, uh, people with HIV, and other things. Yeah. And I think Dr. Sagan is pointing out that uh, not every immunosuppressed patient is going to require that fourth dose, but some will. So the 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 need for that extra dose is based on their uh, their immuno immunological testing. Yes, yes, and even though that is uh, questionable, because there's there's more to uh, preventing. Uh, COVID than just the antibody, because the cell-mediated immunity is important as well. But yeah, that, yes, it is based upon antibody testing. How, how do they uh, measure that, that other kind of uh, immunity you were talking about? Oh, they have a, a antibody test that, that measures the amount of neutralizing antibody that is present in your blood. And there are certain levels uh, that they think are necessary to neutralize or uh, kill the uh, virus. And if your level is below that level, then they would think that you need another shot. That that that's the regular test that you were talking about. I was I was uh, yeah. talking yeah. about the other the other um, uh, immune markers. That that's the only test that is done. Oh, okay. Right. That's the only test that is done. That's why uh, one of the articles we talked about last week uh, indicated that uh, uh, you're only talking about one component of the immune system, but you got many components of the immune system. So uh, uh, maybe we're being presumptive and that we don't need to do it because we haven't, we haven't done any tests to check on the cell-mediated immunity whether that exists or not. And all we've tested is the antibody part portion, but the protection is a result of both the antibody level and the cell, uh, T cells or cell immune, cellular immunity, as well as humoral immunity. So humoral yeah. means antibody, uh, cellular means the T cells that fight off infection. So yeah. did, that, that was my question. Do they have a way to measure 
the, the T cell uh, response. No, we, we have not incorporated that into the process yet. Okay. Well, somebody like Colin Powell, who had multiple myeloma, may not be considered to be fully vaccinated unless they've had like maybe four doses. You know, they were saying he was fully vaccinated, but with two doses and his immunocompromised condition, that may not have been the case. He may have needed four That's doses. That's correct. That's correct. You're, you're right. You're right, Daryl. Absolutely right. Especially with uh, myeloma being known to produce uh, gamma globulinemia, which means a low antibody titer. So you're right, even the fourth dose might not have been adequate. So he, so in point of fact, he may not have been fully vaccinated. Well, this is something that uh, we, we know that uh, the CD panel and, and most panels expanded the booster rollout for people over 65. Will it be further rolled out? Uh, it's a good question. And I think the answer will be provided by what happens with the group that's been given that booster shot and how many breakthroughs will occur after that booster shot. And so, Time will tell on that one. Now, the, the mix and match is now something that is recommended. So uh, just about the Pfizer, Moderna, and the J&G are uh, allowed to be uh, mixed so that if you have J&J, you can get Moderna or Pfizer. That's something that uh, is, FDA has finally approved as well. Is that just for the booster, or can you get, um, say, the Pfizer, the first shot, Pfizer, the second shot, Moderna, or? Yeah, you, and, and there's evidence that it doesn't matter, and that there may be an advantage. So yeah, that's true. You can get your second shot with either. At the time, that was not the case, but now that they've done studies, they recognize mixing and matching is okay. I think that's nice to know because uh, sometimes the J&J and the others were felt left out, so now everybody's there. And this, this explains uh, the fact that over time we have recognized that we are more knowledgeable now and recognize that mixing and matching uh, works. The Dr. period Keller, is still six months after vaccination. Dr. Keller, did you hear any, um, any, uh, I guess, feedback from um, um, Pfizer and Moderna regarding um, uh, mixing the, the vaccines? I, I guess this interferes with their profit. So was there any discussion from, 
from these organizations as to try to prevent the mixing? Not that, not that I know of, no. Mm. I, I think they would be ill-advised to do that. <laughs> and, and, and probably if they did, it would be kept secret anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Because people would say, how greedy can you get? <laughs> now, this is the pill uh, uh, that uh, is our future, as we talked about, and Tatum talked about our future. I remember it was a, most programs in, uh, forget the uh, name of the program, but they showed uh, about 50 years into the future and uh, they had the vaccines and the pill. You take one pill and that was it. <laughs> but of course that's, that's fake, but I, I, I can imagine that being the future. I, I guess I can too, Dr. Collins, because I sitting here talking to a transplant group and I can remember very well the first heart transplant. So yeah. my march is on. Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing how far we've come, huh? And now we, now we have modified an animal to become a source for donors, which may be- yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Dr. Callender, are, are you uh, familiar with the um, technology of this pill? It, no. How is it different from the mRNA? No, I'm not. Okay, maybe we'll do we'll something to get on it. Yeah. yeah. Daryl. <laughs> I think as it becomes approved, we'll get the information after, after the FDA approves it because they haven't approved it yet. But. <clears throat> I knew the guy that had the first, uh, his father had the first mechanical part. Um, what is his name? Chuck, Chuck Russell, Charles Russell's dad. You all remember that, Carol and Daryl, you all remember that? Yeah, I remember uh, Chuck Russell's father, yes. He had the first mechanical heart, is that right? Yes, and his son, Chuck Russell, had no heart at all. <laughs> Well, actually, uh, he, died of, he died of a heart attack because he was jogging and just fell dead. His son? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And his father was a judge in Indiana. Oh. He was one of our classmates. Oh, really? Chuck the mechanical heart person was one of the No, he was a father, one of our classmates. Father one, okay. Uh -huh. hmm. um, it's interesting because uh, Israel has a record of, of having more uh, people vaccinated. They have become the place of first choice to see the effects of vaccines against Delta variants. And so they looked about this in the 12 to 18 year old group, which uh, was relatively new and found that it was uh, very effective. 
It'd be 12 to 8, of course. Uh, now they're going from 5 to 12, but anyway. Uh, this is important for the school schools because 5 to 12 and 12 to 18 is school age children. And this is the uh, more recent where the, the 5 to 12 are now uh, FDA approved. This has caused a lot of controversy. Uh, as a parent, are you going to get your child vaccinated? They're vaccinating them at the schools now. They're going to roll it out. They, they can get the shot right in, in school. I think we used to get that, uh, John, when we were in uh, elementary school. We used to get shots or something, some kind of vaccination right in school. That was a polio in Indiana. Okay. Yeah, we used to get that. It was on a sugar cube, something like that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I remember that, the sugar cube school. What do you think parents will feel about it? Well, since they're more intelligent these days, they'll probably protest. <laughs> <laughs> I think the parents might want to get it done at their family physician instead of at school. I think wherever, I think they more likely to want it than not want it. Because you don't trust the school system for some reason. <laughs> well, the nurses are still healthcare providers. I think they trust the school system because they surely do send them to school sick and tell yeah, them yeah. To the nurse. Sure do. Sure do. Yeah. Fevers, fevers and everything. Vaccinated parents are real happy about this, but people that are vaccine hesitant and reluctant, uh, they don't want their kids vaccinated. True. Yeah, well, uh, I know in Virginia, they, they've had to uh, shut some schools down because of the outbreaks and uh, the, the, the rate of uh, infection among kids and hospitalization has skyrocketed in some areas. So um, uh, my my wife has been back in the building with uh, with children, <laughs> and uh, kids are half wearing a mask. They have they have to have masks on in DC, but the kids, you know, have them down below their nose or <laughs> they drop them all the way down. I mean, they're on the chin, you know. Uh, so uh, and several kids have um, have uh, come down with uh, a tested positive for COVID. And several of them have have been on quarantine for ten days. Well, that's good reason. That's that's the good reason for them to want to have the vaccine. Yeah. But it's quite interesting to see how it uh, works out. The, the, the dosage is half the dose for an adult, I think. Well, that's amazing how, uh, how much progress we made and how uh, quickly we were able to get uh, 
these studies done. Well, this is a, a warning sign that's that uh, uh, what happens other countries may happen here as well. So when you see uh, new infections elsewhere, you wonder whether it's gonna happen in the United States as well. So. And this is now almost, this is close to the second year. So I guess in, in, uh, in December, it'll be uh, two years. Yeah, okay. Lars, get, get your shot and stay safe. Have a good weekend. Thanks for joining us. We haven't seen much recently on the uh, breakthrough infections, uh, which is something that we were talking about a lot. But it's gonna be interesting to see. Look at that, you're looking at what you see. Now I went to a basketball game last last week and uh, they, they did the best they could. Uh, and they had signs up uh, reminding people to put on their masks. I would say about 80% of the people wore masks in the, uh, now I'd say about 10% of those people had the mask at the below the nose level, but about most of them uh, wore the mask. They would let you eat at the, uh, where you sit, but they'd ask you to wear your mask when you weren't eating. Gonna be interesting to see how this works out. At the football games, uh, I guess they don't wear masks at all, huh? Well, football well, fans? When, when I went, they recommended it, but there was no uh, enforcement of it at all. And uh, I was pretty worried about, we, we kept ours on the whole time, but uh, a lot of people, and you know, the, the seats in the, in, uh, and FedEx are so close, you know, if, if somebody sit next to you and they got it, you got it, you know, unbelievable. Well, I, I, the, uh, the, the people at, in, in the uh, One Capital Arena, they had, they had pretty signs that, that said, put your mask on. So they tried to monitor it. And if they saw people who weren't, they flashed a sign to them and, trying to get them to do that, to put the mask on. But they didn't force them to, they just uh, gentle encouragement, which often was uh, ignored. <laughs> but 80% but of people wore masks. This is interesting uh, how long the uh, Melbourne, Australia, uh, COVID lockdown went on. So they've had 
lockdowns, lockups, and then lockdowns. And, and so, and they they talk about inoculations that reach eighty to ninety percent, which we're far from that. Is any anybody uh, I haven't seen many recent articles on the ethics of uh, not having world coverage of the vaccinations and the fact that ninety five percent of Africans uh, in the continent of Africa are not vaccinated. I would have thought they would have been more of an outcry. Any thoughts about that? Or? I haven't heard too much about any other countries lately. Well, Not yeah, even us. I, I was thinking in particular about Africa because yeah. the fact that 95% of the population not vaccinated. It seemed like that would be a, a ethical and equitable issue. Is that the one of the, of the countries where we sent the free vaccine, or do you? Yeah, that's one of the places. But but still, only five percent of the population is vaccinated. I think that would be a cause for alarm, or well, should be a cause for alarm. Yeah, it seems to be racially motivated and uh, wealth inequities. The poorer countries are getting fewer vaccines uh, sent to them. Uh, I haven't really compared how many, uh, what's the vaccine supply being given in India uh, compared to Africa. But, um, okay, on the bright side of all this, if there is a bright side, is that uh, even though they're doing less about COVID and HIV uh, on the continent of Africa, uh, black people, do persist um, still, uh, despite COVID and HIV killing black folks in Africa, we still got the highest black birth rate in the world of uh, four. You know, and so like in Europe is 1.6, Africans uh, is four despite the deaths, and their population is increasing. And so yeah, yeah, strong. We do we do prevail. That's one way of dealing with it. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Um, it's interesting for us meat eaters. Uh, and you remember the initial uh, infection rate of the meat plants, which was a cause for, uh, that was when uh, Trump was president. And they closed down the, the meat industry almost. It's interesting how the uh, beef plants. Uh, what how many people still eating meat? <laughs> Red meat. Oh, everybody. Oh, yeah. Red meat. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting that uh, uh, 
there's so much publicity about the danger of red meat. And, uh, and, and yet, red meat is still so popular. I have a beef roast cooking downstairs right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, when will McDonald's have the plant-based hamburgers? Do they have them yet? I know they. it's been in the newspaper that they're going to get it. I was just wondering yeah. if they're going to produce it. I'm well, I'm sure when they do, there will be a lot of publicity. So I used to love the double cheeseburgers. <laughs> but I, I might get a double cheese plant burger, though. <laughs> <laughs> Try that out. But it has cheese on it. Yeah, I like <laughs> cheese. Yeah, love it makes it better. Cheese does not like you. <laughs> I put Anything cheese. Anything about this this article? Uh, it's interesting because uh, there's so many things about uh, breastfeeding that are positive. That was an interesting article. I read it last night and. I don't think there's any truth to that. <laughs> All right, ladies, help me out. <laughs> well, I think that. Uh, so that, that means we won't get dementia if you breastfeed. Well, the, yeah, but the, the number is uh, kind of small. Oh, okay. Two trials with 115 women. You know, that's, uh, that's not much data. I'm with you, Janice. I don't. I don't think that's. Uh, no. I had three children and I didn't breastfeed, and I think I'm doing okay uh, in the knowledge category. I, I think it's probably hard to get a to get a sample group, you know, to volunteer for that study. Yeah, I think if your husband or your man is your breastfeeding surrogate, that would imp that would improve brain health. What? Oh, boy. Uh Janice, I'm going to wait for more information on that before I can comment on it. Right, yeah, that, that was number uh, mm -hmm. two small. Well, I, I I'm not sure that uh, this is a value. Where did they come up with these names? Who named these bacterias and everything? These bacteriologists and yeah, bacteriologists. Well, they try to figure out how many ways to put letters into position. Who named I, that? Well, the scientists do it. I don't have no idea why they they you could probably they have a good reason. I have no idea. Burkholderia pseudomalia. Uh, I mean, <laughs> wow. Well, how do you pronounce that anyway? A lot of them put their own names in it. Right. Yeah, that's what it looks like. It, but I don't know. Uh, well, now, you know, what was interesting? Do you know who has the uh, highest vaccination rate in the 
world? Oh, China. I think it's Australia, isn't it? I was surprised that they said Puerto Rico. Oh, that's great. I was very surprised that Puerto Rico had such a high vaccination rate. And you know, when you look at what's going on in Florida and Texas and all those other places. We'll go back to the top for a second. Look at this. They have the worst, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's tough for them to beat out Texas. My birthday right there. October 27th, but not 2021, obviously. The birthday was yesterday, John. That's amazing that Florida has the Yes, ma'am. Uh, you know. Happy birthday, belated. Yeah, Thank happy you, belated birthday, John. Yeah. Oh, John spotted. I wanted to announce that he had a birthday yesterday, and now he's completed. So many years of life, 28 years from his first transplant and 11 years from his third transplant. Wow. Congratulations. Hey. Happy birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday. Yes, and congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah my, my whole body has a birthday, and my organs have a different birthday. <laughs> Wow, that's that's wonderful. You celebrate them all. That's yeah. right, each one of them. That's right. So, Doctor Calendar, when I get to heaven, they're all going to merge, I guess. Well, into, they, a, they, into a spirit. Uh, it's going to be a spirit. Right? Yeah, merge into a spirit. <laughs> okay. They announced yeah, about last month it was California that was uh, the lowest. Now it's Florida. Big mm. states. I'm waiting for Texas. <laughs> yeah. We may have to go there by the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be that. That'd be interesting to see if we ever get to that point. Well, it's it's great to see them because I remember when Florida was number one who was pregnant. Yeah, but you know the other thing about Florida is there's a lot of travel between Florida and Puerto Rico, isn't it? And so well, it's Florida and every every place else. Yeah, so they can mess people up over in Puerto Rico, bring their well, numbers down. Well. That's one of the longest lines in the airport from Miami to Puerto Rico. Yeah, they're taking COVID over there. <laughs> <laughs> 
three. Well, you know, it's it's it, the only thing we can hope for is that as we get closer to uh, December, that uh, the drops continue to drop, and that 2022, uh, we will say that. COVID is in our past history. Okay, Dr. Callender, you just said something that I, I hopefully I could take back to a group that I met with on Zoom yesterday. They were discussing about could they resume normal and how people is gonna to react to their convention, which is in August and um, their board meeting, which is in April. And I sort of thought that everything will have subsided by then in January because a lot of churches around this area are trying to open up at least by January. They've set that date. So why do people are still thinking that we're going to be in this coronavirus in 2022? Is that a possibility or they think it's going to go on and on and on? Well, I, I, I was saying that it should be, hopefully it might be over by 2022. That's what I was suggesting. But uh, time will tell. Uh, um, I think most of us are predicting that 2022 would mark the uh, end of the need for most of it. But time will tell. But okay, besides the vaccine, what else do we need to have? Just the dropping of the hospitalization and death rates. Continued dropping. And also the uh, increase of people who are vaccinated. They've given up on herd immunity. Say again? Have they given up on trying to get to herd immunity before they fully open? I hope so, because uh, uh, there are many who feel we need to be about 90% to have herd immunity. With the children getting vaccinated, well, that that should help herd immunity. Those I think so. I, I'm hopeful it will help because they are a source of the Delta version, which is very transmissible. <laughs> and that's, that's, now, can you imagine sending your child to, to college and have her die like this? Isn't that something? 20-year-old. And how are you going to convince a 20-year-old not to get into a hot dog eating contest? Amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, it's what do you do to uh, somebody who is uh, food stuck in the throat? I'm I'm And if that doesn't work, what do you do then? Trick. Hmm. Heimlich is the first thing you do, right? You hit them in the back real hard. 
Yeah, okay, that doesn't work. What do you do? 911. <laughs> well, she had a 4.0 average. Isn't that sad? She's gonna have to have her stomach pumped, I guess. No, no, no. You need to do a trachea. Yeah, I said a trach. Trach. Well, that's yeah. You have to do it in time though, but because after eight minutes, it's too late. So. Mm. But yeah, hey. that means you have to have a doctor present, right? Well, it means you have somebody who knows how to do. It. You're right. And, and, and you need have, means you need to have equipment too. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Counter, uh, I kind of cheated. I, I have one more article that just came out this morning that maybe okay. we, we can look at. Uh, here it is. Big Daryl. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, we've talked about the. Uh, Microbiome. I guess that, that we probably need to start that off next time because uh, oh, okay. it's 1040. All righty. Uh, can the uh, app group meet uh, next Tuesday at 3.30? Next Tuesday is election day. Tuesday at 3.30, can the app group meet? Any takers? Yes for me. Yes for Dr. Calendar. Next Tuesday at 3.30? Yes, ma'am. That's fine for me. Janice. Janice, go. Janice.